welcome back to the fourth season of The Student Dive. We're your hosts, Honor, Tyler, Cole, and Hope. First, we discuss how the UW-Madison community is responding to the university's COVID response plan for this upcoming spring. Next, we took a deep dive into Wisconsin's forests to learn how human impacts on climate and biodiversity are changing everything from fall colors to the types of trees that we see. Additionally, we will look at proposed changes to the City of Madison's historical preservation standards. Finally, we hear about the MLK Symposium, which featured Nicole Hannah-Jones. All of that is brought to you by the Student Dive Team, a podcast production from the Daily Cardinal. You can find these stories online and in our print editions around campus. Many members of the UW-Madison community have been feeling anxious about COVID-19, as well as the university's plans for opening up this spring. I talked with Cody Angst about how different faculty members and campus organizations feel about UW's response. Thanks so much for being here, Cody. Um, what is the headline of your article and can you explain it? Yeah, so the article is uh, a look into UW-Madison's spring COVID-19 response amid community concerns, and it kind of is exactly what it says on the tin. The goal of the article was to look and kind of go through the finer details of the response that the university put out. Um, But also, I think it's important, it seemed important to um, include the way that the people who were going to be affected by this response responded to it. What were some of the general points of the spring 2022 COVID response plan released by the university? So the biggest parts that seemed most important were the mask mandate uh, being extended through March 1st. And beyond that, also testing was expanded a a fair amount, I would say. They're no longer just offering PCR tests on campus. They're also also offering take-home antigen tests for students at no cost. How are most faculty members responding to this plan? Uh, I reached out to a couple of professors that I had last semester who I felt um, could articulate their thoughts well about how they're feeling about it, and a lot of them seemed optimistic. It seems like because the Omicron variant is, even though it's more contagious, it's usually less severe. Some faculty members seem to have the impression that being safe rather than sorry is a good thing, but also not restraining things too much to the point where it inhibits daily activity. What have organizations like the Teaching Assistance Association, the Associated Students of Madison, and the BIPOC Coalition said about COVID plans? Do they have a general consensus among themselves or do their opinions vary a little bit? They definitely have a consensus, especially among the three groups. Um, The Teaching Assistance Association, or the TAA, they released a statement urging stricter mask mandates and better better versatility when it comes to whether classes are online or virtual, and more concrete plans in the university's rules itself about switching between those modes. Uh, And pretty soon after they released that statement, the ASM released a statement saying that they were in full agreement and pushing the the administration to adopt hybrid policies for every 
for every class on campus. And the BIPOC Coalition also released a statement on Facebook that said that they stood in full solidarity with the TAA um, when it comes to protecting, protecting the most vulnerable parts of our community. Uh, have you heard from friends or other students about how they feel about in-person classes? Yeah, just from being around students all the time, I feel like you kind of pick up on the general feeling that students have. It's nice to be back on campus. It's nice to be going to in-person classes, but also there's a big worry about COVID, especially for students whose families have very vulnerable people or immunocompromised people in their circle. Um, so while some students are overjoyed to be getting what could be almost a normal college experience. Um, I think there's also a lot of worry on campus about how this is being handled and if it's strict enough. So compared to last year, how do you think the general feelings of COVID have changed among students? Are people feeling slightly better about it or like feeling better about how the university is responding to it or just better in general? What do you think? I think that students are taking it less seriously because we've been in the pandemic for so long. It gets tiring, so it like it makes sense that it's hard to keep the same amount of like f worry and um, like protectiveness at the same level. But I think that talking about like the university response, especially because they're, you know, maybe loosening the reins a little bit. Uh, this year, I think most students are feeling a little relieved about that, for better or for worse. Definitely. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Personally, I'm glad that we're, st it seems like we're still taking COVID seriously, not as seriously as I think we probably should be, but um, it's nice to see that like the mask mandate is extended and, you know, tests are still being offered free of charge to students on campus, but I think that there's a lot to be desired when it comes to making courses flexible enough to, to have students who can't come or don't want to come because of the dangers of COVID. Because I know personally for me this semester, some of my professors have been like, I do capture the lectures, but it doesn't always work. And so that's like not a great sign when it comes to students who, you know, can't come because of COVID. And also just keeping track of testing results. It just seems strange to me to have this dashboard, you know, with positive PCR tests, but also have take home antigen tests where positive results are not required to be submitted. Um, it just, it's an interesting way, I think, to keep, uh, keep track of test results on campus. Thanks for being here today, Cody. Forests are essential for creating the air we breathe and keeping our planet's temperature stable. But how has our rapid societal development transformed Wisconsin's forests, and what can we do to create a more sustainable future? I sat down with Thomas Jilk to learn more about one of our state's most iconic ecosystems. Hi, Thomas. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's start with just a quick overview of your article. What's the headline, and can you give us just a short explanation? Sure. So the article is titled Wisconsin's Changing Forests. And 
the origin of it really ironically was a small bit of the final story and it was the part about how the leaves are changing colors now at different times and i was reading this in multiple different local wisconsin outlets and so i thought this might be interesting to write about and from there it developed into more of a wide-ranging story about forests about the history of forests and about their future in an era of you know increasing human influence and climatic changes as well yeah so um you talked about how the leaves are changing colors differently. Do you want to kind of explain what's going on and how that's indicative of um, humans increasing impact on Wisconsin's forests? Yeah, well, it's interesting because part of it is the lengthening growing season that we're seeing. Um, so I think in certain parts of the state, the growing season has lengthened by as much as a couple months since, you know, the 1980s. And we're seeing that that's causing leaves to change colors later, potentially, but there are also factors that might cause them to fall off earlier or to change colors earlier. So there's all these different conditions coming into play affecting that, but it's one of the more visible things that comes out of changes to the climate is these changes to the leaf colors at different times. So I thought that could be an interesting starting point for this story. Yeah, so um, obviously this is something that's happened pretty recently. So what's the history of um, human involvement in Wisconsin's forests and why have these effects not happened sooner? I guess, when did humans really start having an impact like this? So Tyler, in the story, I kind of started with the history of the forestry in the northern part of the state, kind of with logging and with the Paul Bunyan fables um, before 1900, really. So this is when logging was a big influence rather than climate change. Uh, so it was more of direct human influence rather than sort of through their emissions. But it was essentially European settlers who glorified basically logging and the economy obviously ran on logging the Midwest economy. And, you know, I talk about in the story a little bit how that often came at the expense of Native Americans who lived on the lands. And so kind of these ecosystems were being degraded at the same time as the native people were being sort of pushed out. And that's a key aspect of that history. But I also went on to talk about, as you mentioned, um, how climate change is affecting forests. And I think the leaf color change thing is just kind of a way in. Um, there's really more deep impacts going on there that I think are, are worth discussing as well. Yeah, so what are those deep impacts and how are forests responding to the challenge that climate change poses? You know, there's so many ways. Uh, it's hard to even know where to start because, you know, when you change the overarching climate, um, you change a lot of things, some of which we're still figuring out. But um, I talked to Dr. Richard Lindroth, who's a professor here, and he gave me some great insights on this. Um, he, he studies insects and how they interact with forests. But one of the things he said that's very important is how the climate is allowing different species to move into forest ecosystems where they previously couldn't. And one example might be like the southern pine beetle whose range is expanding. Um, and it's known as the southern pine beetle, obviously, because it's in the south. But now, you know, in the next few decades, there's a chance that we'll see the southern pine beetle as far north as the, mid the upper Midwest and other species he talked about included these moths that are formerly called gypsy moths that are undergoing a name change 
that also um, they can't survive extreme cold, but now extreme cold is, is happening less and less frequently. So they're able to survive more and they really are harmful to forests and to trees. So those are just a couple examples, but the invasive species problem is one. And there's also the problem of runoff. So as more precipitation falls as rain rather than snow, you see the soils changing their composition, allowing new species such as earthworms to move into the soils. And these earthworms can kind of, certain invasive earthworms can impede um, cooperation between trees. So they'll kind of get in the way of their roots from connecting to one another and sharing resources. So there's a couple examples. So what does this mean for the future of forests? Why should we as humans be worried about these effects? That's the real question. Um, and there's a couple of ways to, to go at that. I mean, one is the direct, the direct uh, impacts that we've seen um, in terms of, first of all, the leaves changing colors, but also, you know, the way that air quality has been lowered because um, forests have been degraded and the way that, you know, fragmenting of these ecosystems um, can really degrade the amount of species that are able to survive in them. So I talk in the story about biodiversity and Dr. Linderoth talked a lot about biodiversity and how it adds not only sort of um, resilience to these ecosystems, but it adds really sort of some wonder and awe that we can experience as humans when we walk through a forest or, you know, when we experience kind of a wild place that we've never been before, which is becoming uh, sort of a rarer and rarer experience. What can we do to protect this experience? I mean, obviously it's a big problem, but how can everyday people like you and I pitch in? That's a great question. Uh, I think I think the way in is is through that that kind of awe of these of these ecosystems after experiencing them, um, at least for some people. Um, and you know, from there you can find out what parts of this really interest you. You know, are you a bird person? Are you a tree person? Are you a soil person? Uh, you don't have to go to school to study science, but obviously you can. You can channel your interest. You can visit the arboretum. You can donate to to conservation causes. Um, and really just follow your curiosity. You know, you have a thought, follow it to where it leads and um, get involved as you see fit. But uh, my job as a journalist, I think was more sort of to explain past, present, future of these ecosystems and kind of to highlight them um, as another year kind of turns, we were turning as I began the story from fall to winter. So I thought it was a good time to highlight this issue. Yeah, so it sounds like you've been working on this story for a really long time, and obviously you've, I mean, found out a ton about Wisconsin forests. And, you know, through this whole process, what was maybe one thing that surprised you or one thing that you thought was just extremely interesting that you learned? Gosh, there was a few quite surprising aspects to this whole process. I think speaking to Dr. Lindroth, understanding the magnitude of how connected these ecosystems are and how impacts on one aspect can ripple through um, the rest of the ecosystem. And researching, reading Wisconsin DNR reports about these topics as well, you know, they may not be the most exhilarating reads, but they contain details that really provide some insights into, into what the future might look like in terms of continued population growth and land fragmentation but also what emerging solutions there are to these problems. Uh, toward the end of the story, I mentioned new technologies that allow us to map out 
from space, um, what, like from satellites, what the level of biodiversity in a forest is. And those are kind of new technologies that are developing. And also there's a debate over assisted migration, which is uh, this process of do, or this debate really over, do we want to help uh, certain species that might not be fit for the coming climatic conditions? Do we want to plant them in the range that we think they will end up and help them move rather than be um, extirpated or extinct from a certain area? Um, so that's kind of a debate as well that ecologists are having right now. And as I keep saying, again, it sounds like an extremely complicated problem. And, um, you know, there are many, many layers to this. But if there was one last thing you really wanted to emphasize or just one big takeaway that somebody should get out of reading this article, if, you know, they don't retain anything else, what's that one thing that you want them to come away from this knowing? Wow, that could go a number of directions. And <laughs> The one that, and the way I ended this story is really, is really more of a, a human story about how we experience these ecosystems and how important they are for, you know, the air we breathe literally, but also the experiences we have in our daily lives. I walk my dog in a sort of a forest every morning, and I get a lot out of that mere 15 minute experience. And I think we could all sort of do more of that and be more curious. And, you know, when we can work outside, sit outside and experience the um, institutions around us that, you know, honor these ecosystems and try to protect them. I think the Arboretum that I mentioned earlier is a great one. If anyone who's listening has never experienced the Arboretum, I highly recommend it. And so, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I just think we can have a deeper appreciation of the wonder and awe of of forest ecosystems and the biodiversity they contain. And I think if anyone is more interested, they should also check out Dr. Lindroth's research and his research group. And that's a great place to start. You know, there's so many different um, resources on campus as well that you can learn more about these issues and get more involved. So I would say anyone on campus, this is a student dive podcast. So I assume there's some students listening. You can get more involved in this issue. It's, it's, it's on you. And you know, the more people who do, then the better off um, we can be in terms of trying to support these ecosystems that are in danger, to be honest. Thomas, thank you. Thank you. Maintaining historical sites is an important responsibility for modern American cities. Recently, Madison city officials put forth a proposal to unify many of the city's different preservation standards for how historical sites must be preserved and maintained. I sat down with Charlie Hildebrand to discuss how these proposed changes and what these policies could mean for historic sites in Madison. So Charlie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So tell us about your piece. What's the headline and what is happening to Madison's preservation standards? Yeah, so the headline for my story is city of Madison to update preservation standards. And essentially what's happening here is that Madison has five historic districts and each district was created at a different time over 50 years. And as a result of that, each district has different standards when it comes to preservation efforts. And the goal of this update is to establish universal standards that are the same across all five districts. So, Obviously, if they're changing something, there were some issues going on that they needed changes for. So what were some of the issues that incited the need to update the preservation standards? 
Yeah, so for all five districts, none of the ordinances have been updated since they were created. And as a result of that, some standards are much more detailed and extensive than others. And additionally, the language used in these standards can be very confusing for residents who are interested in doing any projects to update their historic homes. So it really is a burden for residents who have no idea um, what the regulations are when it comes to projects. So how will the historic site preservation process look moving forward? When will these policies be implemented? Yes, yeah, so from my understanding, there hasn't been a set time as to when the policies will be implemented. This has been a process that's been going on for a few years now. And the city is still seeking public input um, regarding preferences and suggestions for the updated standards. Right now, there's an online survey that residents can take to um, give more input as to what their preferences would be for the updates. And the city is continuing to hold public meetings to gather input. So in your view, why does this story matter? Why should daily cardinal readers care? Why is historical preservation important to Madison residents? Yeah, not only should Madison residents care about this, but also um, students should care because a lot of students lived in the Mansion Hill neighborhood, which is, you know, around Langdon Street and State Street. So that involves a lot of historic homes. And the preservation standards really dictate what residents can change to their homes, and they specify what elements of their homes must be left untouched. And without these rules, residents would easily be able to significantly change or even tear down their homes with little oversight by the city. So having preservation standards, especially standards that are universal across all districts, will really help to maintain the historic characteristics of the older neighborhoods in the city. What was your favorite part about doing this story? Was there a favorite conversation you had with a source? What was your favorite part? Definitely the research that I did for this. I really didn't know much about the historic ordinances. Um, I didn't know that it was such a burden for residents. Um, I didn't really know that there were in fact rules that um, were so strict that homeowners wouldn't be able to tear down their homes at all. So doing this story made me realize that, you know, it's important that there are universal rules that um, make it easy for residents to understand, you know, what their power is over their own land. All right, Charlie, you wrote a great story. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. UW-Madison welcomed Nicole Hannah-Jones to campus last week for the MLK Symposium. Hannah Jones also took questions from student media representatives from the Black Voice and the Daily Cardinal. Our campus news writer, Claire Lalaberte, was also there to cover the event. Thanks for being here, Claire. Thank you for having me. Just to start, can you explain what the MLK Symposium is and where and when it was held? Sure. Uh, so the MLK Symposium is an event held at UW-Madison annually um, to celebrate Martin Luther King Day. and it is. It was held this year in Shannon Hall at the Union. This year, our speaker was Nicole Hannah-Jones from the New York Times. Can you explain a little bit about who Nicole Hannah-Jones is and the kind of work that she does? Yeah, so she is the founder of the 1619 Project, which is a New York Times Magazine initiative that seeks to tell American history through the lens of um, specifically African-Americans. Sort of the goal in that project is to reframe history so that it's not 
told so much through the perspective of um, generally white, wealthy landowning men throughout history. It is trying to argue that we need to widen that lens, that we have focused on this very narrow lens that necessarily obscures many of the ugly parts of our history and erases people who have made a lot of contributions to the society that we live in. So it's not a rewriting, because you can't really rewrite history. What happened, happened. What you can do is refocus which parts of our history we're paying attention to and um, whose narratives were uplifting. And you could try to get to a more honest uh, understanding of history. Part of her speech was challenging the perceptions that we have of Dr. King. What did she say about that specifically in the context of the MLK Symposium? Yeah, so um, Martin Luther King is an interesting historical figure when you look at what he actually said during his lifetime versus what we hear in like education and in schools and in media growing up. Um, so you probably learned in school that MLK was very uh, peaceful and espoused an idea that we should all sort of create this uh, colorblind society where we don't think about the color of people's skin and um, was not particularly radical in his beliefs, but he actually was very politically radical. He was, um, he was demonized at the time for his protests being violent and not being peaceful, um, but in retrospect, we sort of ascribe uh, a level of uh, pacifism to him um, which, of course, was a value he, he held, but uh, it just shows how he was demonized at the time and now is venerated in history now that it's more um, convenient to do so. And uh, she spoke a lot about how MLK's beliefs have been watered down and sort of made more palatable and less threatening to power structures because he really advocated for a redistribution of power that um, and that part of his messaging has sort of been, been uh, eliminated over the years in how it's been presented to us. I can't surprise people with Dr. King's words, but I'm going to open by reading some of Dr. King's words because what is remarkable to me is how in all of these celebrations, how seldom we actually talk about what Dr. King said. Most of us who don't study this don't actually have an idea of what he was actually fighting for. Uh, and would probably be shocked by reading uh, some of many, many of his speeches going all the way back from, to 1956. She urged us to sort of consider the actual values that he held to read his speeches and his uh, work in full and not to take at face value anything that we have maybe learned about him in our lives because a lot of uh, issues such as civil rights, um, we can't really trust the information we've been given throughout um, like the American education system and through media and all that stuff. Yeah, you also noted that the speech came at an interesting time for the state as the legislature moved to pass a bill that would prohibit teaching concepts associated with critical race theory. What did Hannah Jones have to say about that effort and how she views her project in that context? So she talked about how critical race theory, uh, it's interesting the moves made to ban it are coming from the same people who sort of espouse the American ideals of free speech and... Um, they sort of the the rationale for banning it has to do with uh, the fact that they see it as like pushing a certain belief system onto children. Um, well, if you look at the actual uh, content of what would be banned, it's it's very broad uh, historical concepts such as racial inequity or white privilege or that sort of thing, which have become such um, sort of politicized buzzword type things that uh, that legislation is being passed right now to ban them without 
sort of realizing that in the context of history, it's just indisputable that those things were a major part of the fabric of this country and how it's been, how it was created and how it continues to be run. Um, and she talked about how um, it's it's crucial to oppose those efforts, obviously, and it's crucial to sort of recognize that we can't um, take at face value what is said about critical race theory and how it's sort of being demonized in the media, um, because what it really is is just a, a looking at um, racial relations and and history through a lens of of understanding the inequity that has sort of shaped our society. What these laws are saying is texts that we don't agree with, texts that we think will make students think differently about their country, texts that say the country uh, is fundamentally racist, will be prohibited from being taught. That's indoctrination. Teaching something um, that supplements something else is not indoctrination because if we believe in the marketplace of ideas, which we could debate, um, but if we believe in that, then we believe that we put all the ideas and the best ideas win. But we don't say that certain ideas are so frightening that we take them off the table, that we can't even discuss them. That's indoctrination. That's how indoctrination works. Are there any other concepts that she touched on in her keynote speech? Well, aside from the critical race theory legislation and aside from sort of how we how we view Martin Luther King, um, she talked about how she personally has been subject to a lot of attacks um, from conservative groups and from uh, from people who oppose what she's teaching as um, as the person who's sort of the face of this of this project and who is identified with, um, I guess, controversial uh, subjects in today's society. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a real problem is that people who try to bring things like that to light are often attacked and demonized. And that's true of MLK himself. You know, he was um, she she did talk a lot of actually about the approval ratings of MLK at the time and sort of how the image that we have been shown of Martin Luther King is that he was this great hero and he was revered by all people and he was this champion of the movement, um, which, of course, is true when we look at it historically. But at the time. Uh, only, I think, 25% of Americans approved the um, March on Washington, which is where the I Have a Dream speech that everybody now sort of views as very palatable, peaceful speech. Um, that's where that was given, and most people didn't approve of it. There was a specific quote that she gave that I think 60 or 70% of Americans believed that black people were asking for things to be handed to them on a silver platter, um, which is just, you know, and she noted that, of course, what they were asking for was just equality and the rights that were already given to other people in the country. So it's interesting to sort of look at how MLK is viewed now and how he was viewed at the time, because we sort of don't really get that kind of perspective. What do you think students and other attendees might have taken away from this event? And was there anything that particularly surprised you? Um, yeah, I, I think that I was impressed by the, her sort of insistence on talking about real issues and not creating sort of like a feel-good type of speech about how we've overcome so many inequities in our history and stuff. She talked more about like what we still need to do and what is currently being done that is exactly what um, MLK opposed in his lifetime and, and how we need to continue to work for those values that he espoused because we are so far from achieving his, his dream, you know? And I think that, I hope that what students and what attendees took away from that is that all, every one of us has that responsibility um, and that we can't really be, we can't be acquiescent at this point because we still have a really, really long way to go. 
Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show and covering this event, Claire. Yeah, of course. It was very, very interesting. And I would really encourage everybody to do some more reading on Nicole Hannah-Jones. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Student Dive, a podcast production from The Daily Cardinal and brought to you from student journalists at UW-Madison.